0: You are listening to another episode of the coaches circle podcast brought to you by lifecoachpath.com our goal is to explore all the different ways you can craft your own career in the fields of coaching wellness and mental health each episode features guests who offer an authentic perspective on their own unique career path and explores ways you might begin to craft your own for more information on who we are and what we do visit www.lifecoachpath.com and now, here's your host, Brandon Baker.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Coaches Circle podcast. Today's special guest is Helen Wyatt. She is a relationship and sex therapist with the Center for Mindful Living in Chicago, Illinois. Hi, Helen. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to get into the work you do. I want everybody to get a, a window into into the into your practice. Um, but first, <laughs> there was a very interesting um, element to our discussion uh, before you came onto the show. How you found yourself um, in sex therapy and what you did before then. So let's let's start off there with a bit of your personal background.
0: Absolutely. So um, from the time I was six or seven years old, I wanted to be an opera singer.
1: <laughs> and so
0: um, my entire life, I sort of grew up chasing um and successfully eventually chasing um this uh want to be a professional operatic soprano. And um all of my efforts were concentrated around this Um, and I performed professionally for 12 years. Um, I'm originally from Michigan and so um, my music career took me to Cleveland, to San Francisco, to New York, to Italy. Um, I lived in Rome for a bit um, and eventually back, back here. Yeah.
1: Wow. That's, that is fascinating. I have to say this is, I think it's it's one of the most fascinating career shifts that I've heard on the show. Um, so typically, and this is actually something that I talk about with coaches and therapists, typically a therapist's past life has to do with, you know, some kind of person-to-person um, kind of semi-coaching relationship or at least you know, coaching mm-hmm. slash therapy has kind of an element to their previous career. So, for example, I've spoken to yoga, previous yoga instructors. I've spoken mm-hmm. to previous, um, private in-home chefs where a big part of their job was talking to their client and kind of chit-chatting, getting to know their lives. And, mm-hmm. and that kind of propelled them to, you know, jump into coaching because they realized that was actually the part of their career that they really loved. Um, mm-hmm. but it's not too often that I speak to somebody who, is in a seemingly completely different area of work. And so I guess jumping off of that, I, I guess I wanted to start off by asking, do you feel like that previous career helped you in in the work that you do now? and And how has it prepared you? Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It helped me. Um, you know, the thing I loved so much about uh, being an opera singer was the collaborative aspect of it. I loved the um, process of preparing roles. I loved the process of um Every show that you work on, you kind of, it kind of feels like the first day of school. It kind of feels like a new beginning um, every single time you jump into a new show. And you learn to collaborate with people. You learn to play off of people's energies. You learn about all the personalities that are in the room and how you sort of need to navigate that and advocate for yourself as well. Um, and so part of uh, the piece of being an operatic soprano that stuck with me is this, um, this sort of piece of, around collaboration. And um, this, I, I also taught voice lessons for a long time. So I feel okay. like I've been doing therapy for a long time because of the way I would teach voice lessons.
1: Right, right. There's definitely yeah. an element of therapy there,
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: So what was the turning point for you um, in your career uh, in your musical career, what was the turning point that made you realize, okay, I want to, I want to shift gears? Uh, I was going to say shift gears a bit. Turns out it was more than a bit. Um, you you wanted to shift gears pretty significantly into the field of therapy. What made that change happen for you?
0: So as um, the audiences became larger and larger, um, uh, toward the end of my professional career in opera, I was performing with Chicago Opera Theater here and um, in the Harris Theater, which is a very sizable audience, and I noticed myself, um, I loved the preparation process of roles. I loved the rehearsal process. I hated performing. Um, it felt like so much pressure to deal with when I finally got to the place I wanted to be. And then adding to that, um, it's a tragic story that I can talk about now, but my mother, um, passed away and I actively watched her, um, slowly passing away for four years. And so, um, it kind of put the importance of, um, perspective Uh, you know uh, it it created a perspective for me that I didn't have before Mm -hmm. and I realized that the thing I loved so much about opera was one communication and two uh, that love and death seem to affect us as humans so heavily so as artists we're able to celebrate what it means to live a life that is sort of my opinion of the job of artists and Mm -hmm. When you, um, you know, put death into the mix, um, this is the thing we're constantly our whole lives trying to evade. And we're trying to live our fullest because if we're living our fullest, it means that we're farther from death. Right. And so these are the things I was thinking about when I took this huge jump. And I remember um, the psychotherapist, Esther Perel, she's one of my um, role models. And I remember her talking about the importance of sex education and the idea that eros, um, the Greek word for sexual love, means not just um this feeling of sexual love, but Eros encompasses this feeling of vitality and aliveness that connection with other people brings us. And um, sexuality is a thing that we're saturated with culturally, and yet we don't talk about it. And at the same time, it's also the thread that connects all human beings throughout cultures, throughout um, different civilizations. Absolutely. Um, And so I thought that that was very important in all of this
1: absolutely so you know it is something that i mentioned to you before we went on air that sexuality is not something that people typically talk about you just reiterated it Um, i think everybody kind of would agree that it's it's something that's often um maybe taboo you know it's it's something that Mm -hmm. we don't uh discuss in day-to-day life so uh what what are some of the most common um I guess, sexual challenges or relationship challenges that that clients come to you facing. And secondary to that, have they had they previously sought out help from different sources, maybe a different type of therapist or a different type of coach or maybe some. um, Well, this is maybe less likely, but maybe people in their personal lives. Have they sought out help before they went to you? And uh, what I guess what kind of stories do you typically hear from clients in that regard?
0: Absolutely. Um, So the first most common thing is around uh, desire discrepancy. So couples that um, members of the couple are having and experiencing different levels of desire for engaging in sex and um, engaging in connection. Um, And this affects our research says 80% of couples at some point feel discrepant desire, differing desire. Um, That's what's reported. I have a feeling like the number is around 90 to 95% because it's actually the typical normal thing is to feel different levels of desire. Um, I think oftentimes people come to therapy saying, you know, is there a chance of us surviving long-term when we're so different? And the answer is yes. Um, These are the things that uh, keep relationships interesting and alive, but the challenge is being able to talk about and communicate about sex. Because Mm -hmm. again, back to um, what you said was, um, the things that we talk about with sex are danger, disease, uh, harm, negative feelings it brings us, it is more taboo to talk about pleasure and connection out loud and in public. The second second and third most common things, uh, second would be sexual shame, shame around how someone learned about sex. Oftentimes these people come from religious backgrounds, but not always. what I do notice is that there is some element from their childhood around You know, that uh, sex is shameful. So uh, they could have been caught masturbating, for instance, when they were a kid and their parents Mm -hmm. shamed them. And, um, you know, it still sticks with them to this day. Um, And the third uh, most common thing is sexual pain, especially in females. Um, And I actually have published research on um, the experience of. Females with sexual pain disorders, where their doctors will say, um, This is the reason for your sexual pain. Um, ignore the sex. We're going to treat the actual medical reasons and just be glad that we can treat that thing. Yeah,
1: that sounds so, like a doctor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's,
1: it's kind of a crazy response, but um, it does seem to me that sometimes doctors kind of see their patients as examples in a medical textbook. And uh-huh. um, it, yeah, I mean I I it kind of bewilders me. I mean these are people living real lives. It's not just it's not just a kind of like a, a doll or a robot that you're treating to try to get past the pain, but anyway, okay, I'm on a tangent now. But, Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: You're going to make me go on a tangent. <laughs> yeah,
1: we, we, we got to remind each other, Helen. All right.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. All right. So um so were those it those I think you mentioned three or four different um Yeah, those yeah. are the top okay.
0: 3. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
1: actually, the the first one you mentioned is kind of touching on something that I wanted to to bring up with you. I'm you sure. mentioned the discrepancy in in desire between the two parties in the relationship, and the way that it relates to to what I wanted to ask was, what do you do with a couple um, who? It's a, well, I guess two two part. Well, well, I guess generally, what what do you do with a couple who? has a discrepancy, not in necessarily desire, but in their perception of a problem. So do you ever Mm -hmm. have a situation where one party in the client feels that there is a problem that needs to be resolved and the other one doesn't, and so therefore only one is willing to come in? How How do you tackle a situation like that?
0: Sure. Um, So it's interesting because oftentimes couples will come to therapy both with the opinion that the problem is around discrepant desire. The problem is around their um, schemas and sort of scripts around what sexuality should be. But the problem, um, when I start hearing their story, actually has to do with something completely different. Hmm. (laughs) And um, so getting their buy-in and helping them to understand the underlying issues that show up in this tangible, physical thing we engage in um, you know, that, that's what that work looks like. And to me, that's where the difference in story comes because, um, oftentimes in my experience, working with couples around desire discrepancy, again, sex is um, something that you physically engage in. So you can tell when, um, people have different levels of desire around it.
1: Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah it's it's definitely something that I wish was I guess more mainstream in the way we talk about it. Um, and I know that some therapists that I've spoken to that that specialize in in, in sex therapy and sex related challenges um, and this is a topic I wanted to kind of transition into. they specifically avoided getting their their license, their therapeutic mm. license because um of the kind of restriction against physical touch. And so a lot of and they, this is what they report, a lot of their clients mm-hmm. come in with um, you know, like you just mentioned earlier, um, you know, a lot of repressed kind of sexual um kind of, you know, feelings that they have from perhaps a traumatic event from when they were younger or what have you. And this particular therapist was mentioning how without the element of physical touch, it's sometimes difficult to get at some of those most deeply seated, um, you know, psychological challenges that, that they're facing. So what is your perspective on that? Um, <laughs> do you think it's it's fully possible to achieve the results you're achieving without any element of physical touch
0: involved? Sure. This is something I actually talked to my father a lot about who is a physician. He's a medical doctor and he actually asks me the same question. Well, how do you fix this stuff? If you cannot physically touch your patients, because that's what he wants to do when he examines people. Right. Um, And this conversation around touch is so important. I think, yes, it could be important depending on the need the couple is coming in with um, for your therapist to, um, you know, utilize touch, but I don't think the therapist has to physically themselves engage in the touch. Um, if you've ever spoken to a sex coach versus a sex therapist, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, a sex coach is someone that is going to go in and physically uh, coach and, and help people, um, you know, engage through touching exercises. What I like to do in therapy is, I like to really do a lot of work around exploring the role of touch, often people don't think about it um, before therapy and the role of non-demand pleasuring, um, using touch that doesn't lead to intercourse uh, to kind of create intimacy in their relationship. That's where I think the therapist and the sex coach differ is how you talk about touch. I don't think it's a necessity, but you have to know how to talk about it and how to develop exercises that help um, clearly incorporate what you're trying to get after and create some element of tangential change for the couple, right? Um, Because you can only go so far with insight. This is the opera singer in me, um, (laughs) is that you have to feel some sort of physical change uh, for a change to occur.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I like how you I like how you tied that in. Um, I, I think it's always <laughs> I think it's always fascinating how how you know the people I talk to on the show they they see such a direct line from their previous work to what they do mm-hmm. now. Um, whereas in some cases it might seem like totally different, but they always see that connection. They they can make sense of the story in their heads, and I think that's important. I think it's important mm-hmm. no matter anybody out there who is in a line of work that might seem completely unrelated to coaching or therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the message here is: do not be afraid to make the jump because there's, especially when it comes to interpersonal relations, when you're just talking to someone, there is almost always a common thread between a previous line of work um, to to coaching or therapy. So absolutely, yeah. I don't know
0: if you're familiar with Emily Wapnick's talk, uh, their TED Talk on multipotentiality. But I think it was really important in making a career switch. And I think um, they talk about how oftentimes we're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And that when we get older um, refers to one job and we're supposed to concert concentrate all of our efforts around this one job and if you sort of change that thing everyone looks at you like what are you doing I don't even know what to do with this because your job turns out to be your identity they're very closely tied right and so I think when you um sort of listen to your inner self and you are a person that um has potential in multiple areas um, it makes you that much more able to pull from a very wide palette and a wide skill set and help people in a really different way you know there are things I've learned about breathing from being an opera singer Hmm. that I use with every single couple yeah that (laughs) I can see that you know yeah 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 that other therapists don't use
1: Wow, that's that's really mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, I mean the the just act of you know focused breathing, obviously, as we all know, is sometimes a cornerstone of a lot of coaching and and therapeutic work, uh, meditation, and you know uh, yogic practices as well. And so, mm-hmm. what you're describing here—that's another one I didn't even see coming. Uh, of course, you know, breathing. Oh, is yes. So interesting. Uh, that's why I love asking about about people's backgrounds because you never know the ways that it's going to tie in. Fantastic. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I one last element about about the specific work sure. you do, and then and then we can move on to um, kind of the elephant in the room in the room here, which is COVID. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, but <laughs> sure. um, but I, I did want to ask you one sticky subject. That I mean, I again, this is stuff people often don't like talking about, but I think it's interesting from the perspective of a therapist. So, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. on your website that. You have experienced navigating concerns around consensual non-monogamy and, Mm -hmm. of course, just general relationship issues, Um, you know, if a couple thinks it's not working out for whatever uh, their particular reasons are. And what I want to ask you is, how do you balance, and this must be really hard, but how do you balance Mm -hmm. what a couple wants, what the client wants with your own, I guess, natural, I guess, idea of of what's really working for them. Mm -hmm. Um I'm probably not wording it right, but it's kinda like it's kinda like if, if somebody shows you the word, like, I don't know, desk and it's and they say, okay, I'm gonna show you a word, but don't read it. Just look at it and don't read it. It's kind of impossible. I mean you just seeing it, you instinctively are going to read it where I feel like as a therapist or a coach, it's kind of the same thing. You have to suspend your own personal thoughts on a particular client situation, even though naturally we all will have them. So how do you balance Mm -hmm. the two there in in your day-to-day practice?
0: Absolutely. So, um, one of the biggest ways to balance this is asking open-ended questions. I think this is a really uh, difficult thing to get used to first, um, at at first, and then it gets easier is asking questions that let people express their opinions and then not just letting the opinion go by you. Um, You know, really digging in to get wrap your mind around, you know, who the client is and what uh, their goals are or what their moral compass tells them. Because, you know, we can be as Um, unbiased or aim for being as unbiased as possible, but we're all still human. We all grew up with a certain moral compass and a certain system of values too, right? Which is why I think you're asking this question is, you know, what do we do when something sort of like strikes a chord within us that um, is like, ooh, uh, gives us a little (laughs) squick, right? Right, right. Um, And I think being able to ask questions in ways that sort of lead a client to see another option and um, helping the client get into this both-and mindset rather than this sort of we check a box or we exist in boxes with labels. Um, I like to talk to my clients about existing on spectrums, how nothing in nature really is binary There are so many perspectives and different versions of things. Why would you and the way you think be any different? Right. Right. Right.
1: right. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a, it's almost kind of a superpower, I think, for somebody to suspend their own biases. I mean, after all, this is why Mm -hmm. you got into the field because you have your own set, you have, like you said, your own moral compass, your own idea of the way things should Mm -hmm. be done, perhaps, or maybe the healthiest way to go about things. And especially, I think when you deal with issues related to sexuality, what's, what's normal, maybe, is not Mm -hmm. the same as what's natural. And what's, what's, I guess, normal, whatever that word even means, is not always Mm -hmm. what's conducive to a couple um, being at their healthiest. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I can only imagine, you know, as a non-sex therapist, uh, just speaking from a layman's perspective here, it just mm-hmm. seems like a really, really big challenge. And I I, I think anybody getting into the field of coaching or therapy, especially with regards to sex, has a, mm-hmm. a big um, challenge, um, not insurmountable, of course, everybody's doing it, but to different degrees. But it's definitely a big challenge to suspend that um, personal bias for the sake of you know, your client's ideal uh, course of action. So
0: absolutely. Yeah,
1: I think that's that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you for sharing. I I wanted to um, the the last topic I wanted to to discuss is, like I said, COVID and how Mm -hmm. therapists are kind of learning to deal with this new Zoom centered world that we find ourselves in. And you're absolutely. Yeah, your, your particular case is obviously interesting because, you know, sex is obviously, it's a, it's a primarily physical type of uh, topic. I mean, obviously you can talk about it, but obviously it is a, you know, it is physical. And so it's a little hard maybe for some clients to derive the same benefit uh, doing their therapy remotely versus in person, or maybe not. So that that's kind of what I wanted to ask you is how you have how how your practice and how your clients have kind of maneuvered around this new world we find ourselves in. And also sure. secondary to that, if you can keep all this in your head at once, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> maybe any new challenges or higher incidence of certain kinds of challenges that your clients have come to you with since COVID hit?
0: Hmm. So, It was much more difficult, I think, for everyone at the beginning. Um, As a therapist, from my therapist perspective, I found myself completely emotionally drained because I'm a therapist where I'm very present in the room with my clients. I'm not sitting back and kind of letting them just talk. Um, I'm very active with my clients and engaged in the conversation. Um, And so I was, I found myself, um, you know, trying to, compensate for my lack of showing that I was physically engaged with them um to sort of I, I was taking on their emotions and just completely drained after I would finish my days in therapy right. and eventually that got easier I um realized that this behavior was happening for myself um through talking to some of my um mentors and uh you know life coaches Mm -hmm. um, that I see through my profession. And I was able to kind of rein the way I was using um, my physical presence and emotional presence in a little bit so that I had some energy for my next clients. Um, On the client end, I actually, so it, it, you know, feels like we're working out some kinks um, in the first, second sessions. And then I find that, they actually are more themselves. Um, You get to see a little bit better how they authentically interact with each other because they're in their own homes, because they're somewhere that they're comfortable. They know where they are. And that's very helpful information, as you can imagine, as a therapist. And, um, you know, you can ask me questions uh, about that, but to answer the second part of your question, um, clients often come to therapy Um, due to COVID lately, because they are, um, you know, feeling like they see each other too much, almost, (laughs) and they don't know how to get space from one another in COVID. And they're having to confront all of these problems uh, that they could simply avoid or have some space from when they were going out into the out into the world on a daily basis. So, um, you know, being able to see those interactions authentically um, in the moment, you're able to also help a client, you coach them on how to talk to each other, for instance, and um, ideally that physiologically uh, sets in and helps remap the brain. It helps remap anxiety. It helps um, get them doing it in a space that they're comfortable in right right
1: yeah um i i wanted to follow up with you on yeah. something you mentioned about how some clients actually find it more effective to uh, and more comfortable to do their yeah. therapy from home now I, that makes total sense to me um i think when you're in your natural environment you know more of your natural self is going to come out maybe you can think more clearly Uh, It's not a new kind of strange environment that you only find yourself yourself in when you're doing sex therapy or relationship therapy. So, yeah, I mean, I can imagine how that would be more natural. On the other hand, though, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, (laughs) you know, I guess I'm putting myself in their shoes. I'm married and me and my wife are at home pretty much (laughs) now, like a lot of couples for most of the day as she's watching my You know, our our two girls and it's kind of I'm working from home. And so, yeah, we're always kind of together. And if we were to go out to therapy, to relationship therapy, if we were struggling with one particular issue or another, it would feel kind of a it would feel like kind of a communal like group activity because of the fact that we Mm -hmm. are okay. We got to get a sitter for the kids. We have to go out to the car. We have to make the 20 minute drive. We have to sit in the, Mm -hmm. in the room and then we have to come back. Maybe we go out to eat after the session to kind of, I don't know, discuss, or maybe we talk in the car, we come home. So it's kind of this whole ritual that I think that ritual would add to the effectiveness of the therapy, You know, more so than if, for example, if I were just a solo case, an individual, and maybe I was going to therapy for some unresolved trauma or something. I feel like maybe that ritual wouldn't really be as important. Um, But with relationship coaching, I feel like it would. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And do you think maybe that element, are you maybe looking forward to that element coming back? Do you think that element is important for clients?
0: Absolutely, it's important for clients. <laughs> absolutely, it is um, because there. You're absolutely right. There is a ritual to all of this, and so one um, thing that I overtly will talk about with clients is how to make a ritual um, in our own homes um, around intent, intentionally um, paying attention and giving time and respect to the relationship in the, in our homes, um, and making the best out of the situation now. Um, I think I personally cannot wait to go back in person. <laughs> <You can imagine. laughs> um, yeah. personally cannot wait because I used a lot of, um, empathic, um, sensing of emotions in the room and there's a lot of body language you certainly miss Uh, that is one of one of the downsides to telehealth sessions Um, but the way you can kind of create that working on these things in COVID is is there a way you can get behind closed doors Can you lock the door? No kids, no animals are allowed in here. Is there a space that you can go to every single time for your therapy session? Um, I had one couple I was talking to this past week who um, they had a lot of great body language. They were turned toward each other. They were like kind of cuddled up on the couch. And I said, well, in your normal everyday life, do you guys always sit on this couch like this? And they said, no, we're always on separate couches. This is for our therapy sessions that we're sitting in this way. So, um, you know, it it does, I think having a ritual and um, going to the same place every single time is important because it does create sort of a separation mentally um, in your head.
1: Yeah, I think just an easy way to put it is there's a way that we always do things And then there is a new way that we're doing things on this new path, right? It's just Mm -hmm. like a very simple way to separate the two. Um, You know, going back to my old example, maybe there is a restaurant that only exists near the clinic that you would never be in that part of town. And you go specifically to that place uh, before or after the session, right? And so it's just an idea. like Like you said, I think it's important to create that intentional ritual because that habit is so important, I would, I would imagine for, for that healing process to take place. So absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Great.
0: I think also because our brains run on autopilot, a lot of yeah. the work in therapy, it doesn't matter what kind of therapy you're doing, but our brains, uh, the difference is, uh, with therapy, you're actually mindfully choosing to make a decision to behave differently, right. Or to do things differently. And so the more you can make a ritual around your therapy sessions as you're at home um, helps to sort of solidify these, these changes.
1: Yeah. Yep. Totally. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, Helen, you've given our audience a lot to think about from, (laughs) from your own evolution into this field um, Mm -hmm. to, to the specific work you do that isn't talked about enough. And um, anybody that wants to get into the field of whether it's sex therapy, sex coaching, relationship coaching, mm-hmm. any of these kind of, you know, cousins, uh, these related fields that all kind of have similar elements to them, I think, I think this show is going to give them uh, a good, a good, you know, base to to think about all these issues and these sometimes tricky issues that, um, you know, we don't have any practice talking about in our day to day life, right? That's, that's one reason why this is so tricky to um, to navigate with clients because it's just not something we talk about. I mean, somebody might have talked to you about a, a co-worker or maybe a, a, a boss you have that's that's tough or maybe a career transition you're having or the death of a, of a loved one. I mean, this is stuff that everybody talks about, but sex is kind of hidden in the background and it's happening mm-hmm. – it's, it's just as much a part of our lives as all these other things I mentioned, but nobody has any practice talking about it. So I, I think it's it's really, really important work you're doing. So um, I want to give listeners one last chance to to, you know, find out more about you. So um, can you just tell us your website and if you're on social media or where else uh, our listeners can find you online?
0: Sure. Um, I am Helen Wyatt MFT on Instagram. And um, you can go to our website, Center for Mindful Living. Um, Usually, if you look up Chicago sex therapy, it's right there. And you know, you can find certain things I blog about and sort of a little bit more about my background there.
1: Perfect. There you go. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for your time again. I really, really appreciate it.
0: Of course, my right. pleasure.
1: Okay, we'll be in touch. Bye-bye.
0: All right, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Coaches Circle Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to our show just as much as we enjoyed making it. If you'd like to check out a complete listing of all of the episodes on our show, head on over to lifecoachpath.com slash podcast. See you on the next one.